Hello, and welcome to Where Am I to Go? Today, we are at the Jim Gatchell Museum in Buffalo, Wyoming, which is north of Casper, south of Sheridan, on the east side of the Bighorn Mountains. If you haven't ever been over the Bighorn Mountains, it's a beautiful drive. You can go from Sheridan over on your way to Yellowstone Park if you're coming from the east, or you can go the easier route over uh, out of Buffalo. Let's go up over uh, the mountains and you'll end up in Ten Sleep, Wyoming. Again, either way would take you to Yellowstone Park. My suggestion would be to hit the Jim Gatchel if you're coming from the south end and then hit uh, the King Saddlery Museum in Sheridan and then go on over to Grable over the Bighorn Mountains. Or if you're coming from the north side, come on down from Sheridan and hit Buffalo and then go over the mountain there. Either way you go, it's a beautiful drive, lots of scenery, and the roads are all good. In fact, even in the winter, both of these routes are kept open 99% of the year. They're not closed very often. So make yourself a, a wonderful trip and a wonderful visit and stop by and see both of those museums. But today we're at the Jim Gatchel and we're here with Sylvia. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming in. <laughs> Thank you. And she's going to take us on an audio tour of her museum. And we're going to see what all they have to offer. So our museum is arranged kind of chronologically, but also thematically. So when visitors come in, um, it's a little bit out of place. But one of the first things they see is the over 100-year-old wolf hide. Now, um, this is a Wyoming wolf. This is, yes, a Johnson County wolf. Okay. Um, so... There's a long history about wolves in Wyoming, and I'm not going to get into the politics. I know it's, <laughs> there's a very there's a very, very political thing yep, in Wyoming. Yep. If you're in Wyoming, you know the story. If you're not in Wyoming, it's Google best it. to leave the wolves alone. <laughs> yeah, locals. Uh, we we had a lot of wolves. The last one was supposedly killed in what 1948. I'm guessing that sounds right, but I'm not I'm not positive. I do know, his, from a historical perspective, um, Johnson County was like many other regions of the West, and they had a bounty on wolves. So people were actually paid for killing a wolf and bringing it into whoever was the kind of authority at that time. And then they would get a check cut to them because they were purposely trying to eradicate them as they were predators. Very um, hard on wildlife. Yeah. I mean, that's... And, and Wyoming's a wildlife state. Right. That's the so. cycle of having predator and prey and everything that gets intertwined with that. This guy in particular... Um, he was taken down by a man named Elmer Brock, and it was apparently a bit of a battle, but mostly because Elmer didn't want to shoot him. He knew that he wanted to kill this wolf, but he wanted the pelt, and he wanted it to look nice. So he didn't want to necessarily shoot him right away and ruin that pelt, but he, he ended up doing that because it's a wolf. <laughs> it's still a, beauti it's a, it's a beautiful one. wolf. It's a, it's a really it pretty wolf, and he's, he's a big rug. He is. Um, I'm not sure exactly how tall he'd be. You know, currently laid out flat like this, it's a little hard to get a visual on. 
what he would look like. You know, I'm thinking of like my dog, who's a blue healer, and I'm pretty sure this guy's a lot bigger I than my dog. I think he's a lot bigger than a blue healer. <laughs> I, think I, think that they, I think that they, and this is just my speculation, but if, if I remember right, they are a smaller wolf than what they reintroduced in the I 90s. so, because they are slightly different type of type of animal actually. right yeah, yeah yeah they're they're two yep. completely different types yep. of wolf and there's a lot of speculation just as far as the argument goes whether the wolves were actually eradicated from the state of wyoming or whether there were still a lot of them in existence here or not a lot a few of them in existence here when they reintroduced right. it, who knows i mean wyoming is so vast and then we have so many open miles um you know i think Kind of like Sasquatch in the Pacific Northwest. Right, We've right. got a lot of room here for animals and critters of all kinds to go unnoticed. So, I don't, I don't know. I don't know either. But but that's a little bit. But that's a little bit of of the the controversy going on. And and like she said, we're not going to get into it. We're going to, uh, we're going to just go ahead and and leave it at where it is. And and you guys can do the research and make up your own minds as to as to the. That's actually kind of a part of our purpose here. So we try to present what facts we have available and give you the story of Johnson County and the regional history. But we want our visitors to be engaged, to want to learn more, and to come to their own conclusions and have their own opinions, especially if it's something that ends up being kind of a political or emotional topic. Um, you know, we see visitors from all over the world every year. And we see a lot of different perspectives. That's part of what makes working here so much fun. Honestly. And I'm sure that you don't have any opinions of oh, your own. You're all okay. just very neutral. <laughs> this is a cool room. Yeah. So we're now in our um, natural history of Johnson County. And the display that we're standing in front of now has some parts and pieces, if you will, of a dinosaur, an allosaurus. And, and where was the allosaurus found? In Johnson County. I honestly don't know exactly where because it's a private property, but the dig has been conducted over the years by various colleges and universities. Sheridan College, just about 30 miles to the north of us, um, they have in their big entrance facility, I think it's the Whitney Building, they have this huge Allosaurus on display, and his name is Caesar, and he's our Allosaurus from Johnson County. I think they've also got a full-sized one over at the Dinosaur Museum in Thermopolis. I bet they do. That's a pretty amazing. That's going to be a, that's going to be another. Uh, where am I to go? We Good. are going to go to the Dinosaur Museum in Thermopolis because that's a world-class museum, and and it's one place where you can go and see what probably fifteen or twenty full-mounted dinosaur skeletons. Yeah. That they're huge. It's just unbelievable. Well, they're. Um, I've always been really impressed with a lot of their programming. They do a lot of work with people of all ages, but in particular, some of the kids' programming, super cool. Yes. And then this is a wildlife display. Yeah. So a lot of our visitors are not from Wyoming or the West, and they haven't seen a pronghorn antelope before. They don't really know what they are. So they a get speed a goat. Yeah. They yeah. Get, they get a chance <laughs> to hear one. We have a doe, taxidermy doe, and... Beneath her is a fawn, so little. So we tried to kind of highlight some of the, you know, common to us animals, but maybe not common to the rest of the world. So we have a badger, we have the antelope, we have... And I noticed when we came in, there was a rattlesnake rattling. Yes. 
Just just for effect. Yep, we have a rattlesnake <laughs> here next to the prairie dogs and the grumpiest looking jackrabbit in the background. He needs he a set of horns on him. He does. We need we need jackalopes. So Okay. So, as you move out of the natural history gallery and you come into our native history gallery, um, a lot of folks will know that this whole region and all the surrounding region was the home to many different tribes of Native Americans, um, but primarily the influences that we see are Crow, Northern Cheyenne, um, Lakota, Dakota Sioux, and Arapaho. And we're right in the middle of their traditional homelands. So we try to talk about the culture and traditions. We also have a number of items. Um, some of them are from our founder's original collection. And I'll tell you a little bit more about Jim Gatchell here in a bit. Okay. But a lot of the items are actually on loan to us by representatives of tribes. So. Wow. There's some beautiful There's some items. drawers over here that have knives and arrowheads what are bifaces like they stuck them in like knives and scrapers like double wings. and these are all these are all made out of stone that have been napped mm -hmm. and and they've brought been brought to a to a sharp edge there's some really interesting points here we have a nice drawer full of metal points um which they were certainly used in abundance during the time period. But the cool thing about the metal points is that they aren't as common now because they rust away. Yeah. Hammer rocks. This is a really cool item, and I know it, it doesn't look that exciting. But that bowl, I'd say it's, what, about six and a half, seven inches tall? That's yeah. one piece of stone that's steatite that was carved out to make a bowl. And how did they carve it? with other tools, with other stone tools, and a lot of patience. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure it took a lot of patience. Mm -hmm. That's an impressive piece. That's pretty cool. Something else that's cool is you have the atlatl. Yes. And uh, maybe a lot of people wouldn't know what an atlatl is, but it's a, it's a spear, mm -hmm. and there was an, ex an extension piece of wood that you held on to, and you were able to fling the, the yep. spear much like you would those ball throwers with the tennis balls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. same idea. Yeah. Maybe a little bit more leverage and speed than just throwing a spear directly and releasing it from your hand. Um, our atlatl is a reproduction, and so it's a little bit smaller to get it to fit within our case because it's in the same case as some non-reproduction bows and arrows, um, some Plains Indian bows. So we were wanting to show the comparison uh, because the bow and arrow really advanced that technology. So it was easier... Um, they were more effective, but it was also much easier to use while on horseback. Yeah, I just can't even imagine trying to take down a large animal like an elk with something like that. No, I can't <laughs> imagine shooting a bow and arrow off my horse. I think she would dump me and run away. The Indians, though, are very proficient with their riding skills. I mean, even to this day, you go to the the... The relay races? Well, I haven't been to the relay races, but I hear that the relay races are just they're, out of this world and those are in those are in sheridan also mm -hmm. right I, there's various um rodeos and events that feature relay races i've been to the relays in sheridan a couple of times and it's just kind of jaw-dropping you know you watch these young people and they jump 
over a horse's butt onto their back and take off at top speed. It's amazing how agile they yeah. are. And But I was thinking when I was talking about it was uh, in June, I think it's the second week in June was the, uh, was the anniversary of Custer's Last Stand. And June if you, 25th. Yeah, okay, maybe it's the third is, week or something. But something you like go that. on up to uh, Crow Agency and they have the Indian version of the, of the Custer's Indian Last Stand, Indian. which varies very much from what the uh white version is but the indians there they're on and off their horses and, and they're just athletic with yeah. with their horsemanship it's just amazing so we actually in this gallery just put some artifacts out on display um, this last winter that had been in storage for a long time so for from pretty much all museums quite honestly we don't have enough space to display everything we have um, and sometimes that's okay because the other items go into storage where they're resting. They're in the dark, they're in their acid-free tissue boxes, they're kind of being protected, and that can really prolong the lifespan of an item much better than if it was out in the open and exposed to the elements. So by rotating the artifacts, we're preserving the lifespan, but we're also giving visitors something different to see um, might fit within the same overarching topics, but it's different stuff. So you can come here several times yeah. a year and maybe see something different. Yeah. And how often do you change these out? Well, um, not as often as we would like, to be honest, but we have a small staff. There's only three of us here year-round. Oh, wow. So this is a big museum for three people. It is, and it's a time-consuming process because you have to go through and consider what items fit your topic. Can you safely display them? Do they have any condition issues? Anything of that nature. And then you have the job of actually installing them. That is a drum, uh huh, and it's made out of hide, and it's stretched tight. And on the back, there's lacing to keep it tight around the it's kind of a hoop frame. Yeah, there's really you start looking at the details. Um, some of my favorite, I don't know, artistic talents. I guess like I love the beading, as I think everybody does. But the porcupine coiling on some of these Indian objects is just amazing to me because. The whole process of collecting the quills, softening them, dyeing them, and then if you look, they're wrapped and they're they're all attached individually and they're very secure. And it's just kind of gorgeous work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the quill work is is always fascinated me. Yeah, it's just super cool. And that's I'm sure that's what they were doing prior to white men bringing beads yes, or... prior to the bead trade and then as time progressed you know beads were easier to work with they're color fast and you could get much brighter colors like that bright bright blue that you see right. on glass beads that's very hard to come by as a natural dye so they became very popular but then as you moved into like the 1870s, 1880s, where all of the Indians were being forced onto reservations, their livelihoods taken away from them, they had no access to trade and buy things like beads. So then you start to see a resurgence in some of the older crafts coming back, like oh, really? porcupine quilling. Yeah. I know a guy that does some quilling. In fact, he, he gets all excited when we find roadkill porcupines. <laughs> and and quills aren't cheap. It's it's amazing, you know, the, the price that uh that you can get for quills so that uh you can reenact some of that well the next time my dog gets a face full of quills i'll let him yeah know. <laughs> yeah do that 
So, yeah, the dogs aren't impressed. <laughs> no, I wasn't either. <laughs> With the dog or the porcupine. <laughs> I had a dog that got a mouthful of quills, and it's a pit bull German Shepherd. And it came on up to tell me that something wasn't right. So I reached down there with my pliers and I pull it out. And she'd shake her head and then come back and go, okay, next one. Well, <laughs> we, were, we were riding in the wilderness. We were a couple hours into the wilderness. And I just looked down at my dog and I thought, he looks funny. And when he turned around so he faced me, he's a blue healer, but he's basically an all-black dog. And he had all these white pieces. I might have panicked a little. But <laughs> we bailed off, started pulling him out of his mouth. Poor guy. Yeah, yeah. They don't like him coming out any better than they like him no, going in. I'm sure. <laughs> so we're now in our frontier military gallery, and we definitely cover the Bozeman Trail because, honestly, Buffalo wouldn't exist, Sheridan wouldn't exist the way that we do if the Bozeman Trail hadn't come through this area. Um, the Bozeman Trail has a very interesting history. It was very contested. Um, and you can really go back years and years. But if you want to keep the story kind of condensed, you're looking at the 1860s time period. There was a treaty in place that literally said that no roads, no travelers, no settlers would be in this area. And the military immediately broke it. And it was a big area. It was, so all, it it was, was all the Black Hills of South Dakota, if I know. If I, I believe so. And a bunch of Montana all the way down into Wyoming. Up into the Bighorns. Okay. Um, Jim Bridger, pretty famous mountain man, he had a different route that took you on the western side of the Bighorn Mountains. And the reason that he chose that area for his route was because it was out of the contested, especially the hunting grounds of this particular area. So he was kind of giving more respect to the fact that this was the Native Americans' lands, but it wasn't as popular because it was rougher terrain. There was less water, less grass for the animals, etc. So the treaty was just straight up ignored, and the road was put in, and military posts were built, and um, all of this was going on at the same time that the Transcontinental Railroad was being built across the bottom of the state. So certainly, this helped to take some attention away from the railroad workers and deflect and bring more attention up to this area. Um, the trail officially was only in place for two years, but it had very long-lasting effects. It, yeah, there was some there was some bad battles. Yeah, and and the the military did not always come out on the top side of that. No, they did not. So we have a few artifacts from Fort Phil Kearney. Out of the three posts that were built on the Bozeman Trail, you have Fort Reno in southern Johnson County, which today you can get to the site, the area, but there's nothing there other than some nice interpretive signage that the BLM puts in. Um, Fort Phil Kearney is about 15 miles to our north, right off of I-90. And Fort C.F. Smith was just north. Now it's in uh, modern-day Montana, and it's on private property, so you can't access that one. But Fort Phil Kearney was the epicenter where most of the events happened. It's also where the post commander was stationed out of, et cetera. So a lot of folks are probably familiar with the Fetterman fight that happened on December 21st of 1866. Um, it's a really interesting topic, and there's a couple of books that I would recommend if you want to dig into. I always tell people to start with the Fetterman fight by D. Brown, and then next you've got to read Give Me 80 Men, and it's by Shannon Smith. Um, Fetterman has been basically misaligned in history. Everybody kind of talked about this. He was this big, arrogant idiot who disobeyed orders and he got himself and 80 other men killed. 
It's not quite accurate. Betterman. Kind of like Custer. That's how he's painted. <laughs> I would bet my paycheck if you could get in a time machine and go back. Fetterman was nothing like Custer. He was a good man. He was responsible. He was honored during the Civil War. He didn't break any rules or disobey any orders. History was changed after the fact to protect other people who lived. And Fetterman had nobody to fight for him. He wasn't married. He didn't have any family. So he didn't have a Libby Custer figure saying, no, no, you can't blame the dead guy. And that's exactly what happened. Really, if you're interested, it's fascinating how not just the original history of what happened, but how the history that we've known for so many years has really been skewed right. very strongly. Well, and, and, and on our way over, I was talking and I said that uh, Fort Fetterman, and I went, no, Fort Fetterman's in Douglas. Douglas. Named but after him. Named after him. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't get over what the name of the fort was that, that he was in charge of. When And now I see why my confusion. I had, yeah. just because I hadn't studied that or, or hadn't even heard about it. I've been to that battlefield, and, and it's an interesting place. It is. Uh, and, and I don't know what all the details to the battle were, but for those that aren't familiar, it had something to do with the Indians came in and lured mm-hmm. him and and the whole cavalry on out. And when they got out, there was a whole lot more Indians, yes. kind of like Custer's situation. It and was, they got the whole the whole lot of them ended yep. up getting killed. It was very efficiently set up and very well executed by the Native Americans. And there were <clears throat> um, numerous tribes involved. It was quite the cooperative kind of event. There had been, so that was on December 21st. But prior to that, I think it was December 6th and the 18th, there had been previous attempts to conduct this exact same plan. And they didn't happen. It didn't happen like this because people like Fetterman, who went out, didn't fall for the decoys. They obeyed their orders. They relieved the wood train who was under attack, the woodcutters that were cutting wood. Which is another site, the 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 wagon box Mm -hmm. site, which is in the same area. They came back to the post. Everything was pretty successful. But then you had this guy named George Grummond, and he was a lieutenant, and he was a hothead. He had been court-martialed. He had abandoned a wife and children in the East and had married another woman illegally, (laughs) but she didn't know that. Um, He had pistol-whipped one of the men that was under him when he was in the Civil War. This man had issues. He was known for disobeying orders. He took off. He followed these decoys. This is on the 21st now. Fetterman had to go save his butt and bring him back. And it just led into total disaster. Wow. It's super interesting and super impressive, especially if you go to the battlefield. Um, don't go in the middle of a hot day in the summer because there's no trees. You'll just <laughs> you'll sunburn. Um, but it's really interesting place, especially like early morning or in the evening. And here's here's something else that that ties in with that is this John Portuguese Phillips. <laughs> that guy has got to be one of the most amazing men in history. And why there isn't volumes of books written about his his, uh, his track, ride? his ride? It just well, it, it's just uh, amazing. It uh, is it is amazing. He also made it a little bit more amazing. When he retold his own stories. Oh well, of course, but <laughs> I mean, still, but still, the basic fact: how many miles did he ride through? It, it, this this happened just after the Fetterman battle, right? Yes. And and he took off and rode two hundred miles, 
and he did it in in what a day, twenty four hours or something. So it was a little longer. It actually took him about four plus days. So he ended up at Fort Laramie, um, but there were a couple of other men that rode with him. So oh, like, really? Oh, yeah. Okay, so, yeah. I had never heard that part of the story. Yeah. I had just that must have been him telling it. Well, <laughs> I think this is really funny, and I love this fact. He named his son Paul Revere. So I think he, I think he embraced that persona that he was given, and that you know, I mean, teach their own. Like he did a really cool thing, and I think that's okay that he kind of ran with it. No pun intended. But. Right. But yeah, I just you know that that flight in the middle of winter, Wyoming winters are not nice. Oh, It'd be the twenty first yeah. of December would not have been, generally speaking, would not have been no, nice weather at all. That day in particular, it started out nice. And when the troops went out, they weren't wearing their big, heavy overcoats or anything because it was sunny and it was kind of warm. And then it, it quickly went south and they had this massive storm. And we can have temperature fluctuations yeah. here of, of 60, 70 degrees sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it can be 40 degrees in the morning when you get up and, and the next morning it can be 20 below without yeah. any problem. I mean, how many times have we seen that? <laughs> too many. Way too winter. many. <laughs> so, yes. The wagon box fight that you mentioned earlier, that occurred the following summer. And it's kind of interesting to think about how the military perspective had really shifted. So in December of 1866, it was an absolute total loss, the veteran fight. All, they had 79 military and two civilians, and they were all killed. They were very poorly equipped. They didn't have you know, the top-notch weaponry at the time. They didn't have enough ammunition. They didn't have enough training. By the next summer, things had improved a little. So you have, and we have an example here. This is originally a muzzle load in Springfield, and I used to do reenacting. Right. So I've shot, not this one, because it's an artifact, but reproductions a number of times. For somebody like me, I'm 5'4", which is a very common height at the time. You're taking that ramrod, you have to run it down into the barrel to get your powder and then the paper wad and then the ball in there and you have to jam it down in. I can't do that in one motion. I don't have that long of arms. So it takes some time. If you had trained and you were really good, you could maybe get three shots in a minute with a, a muzzle loading. That'd be, that'd like be that. pushing that'd be it pretty really hard. I've shot muzzle loaders also. Same. It's, it's kind of a... And as you know, you have to be standing up. So you're quite the target in a battle. So the Allen conversion was huge because it meant that, A, you didn't have to be standing up. You didn't right. have to muzzle load this thing. So suddenly you had this metallic cartridge, and you could just put one in, fire it. You had still had to have your, um, I forget what this. The hammer? The... Yeah, it's not a rolling block, but you had to work this. And so you'd have to pull out your empty cartridge, put in the new one. But can you imagine how much time that saved? Oh, yeah. Tons of time. You also didn't have... You know, multiple parts on your belt, where before you had your paper. Yep, exactly. Everything was kind of separate because you couldn't put it all together. It wouldn't stay. Plus the little caps. Oh, yeah. And then making sure that those caps are on, right? On, yeah, right? Yeah. And they're tiny, and it's mirror, and your fingers are cold. Or if you've, or if you've got the flintlock kind, you got to fill that little powder right. uh, pan, the, the flash, the flash pan. pan. Yeah, yeah, in order for the striker to right. make everything work and... So yeah. this, I mean, still compared to a modern weapon, you know, you can't compare this to a modern weapon. But at that time, this was a massive improvement. So the troops 
we're equipped with these by that next summer. Um, and we're looking at a diorama here that depicts the battle. So <laughs> let there be light. That guy's even got time to take a drink out of his canteen. Right? Well, it's <laughs> August, out in the middle of the sun, you're very hot and tired. So these were woodcutters, and they were about five miles away from the fort. They were to the west, near the present town of Story. And they were cutting the wood to build the post stockade, all of the buildings, firewood, etc. It was this ongoing woodcutting kind of operation. And so the wagon boxes were taken off the running gear, not to create any kind of barricade, but because when you cut the wood and you wanted to haul that back, you didn't need the extra weight and obstacle of the box. So you just laid the wood across the running gears and that's how it was hauled back. But they did have them kind of arranged in a circle or oval primarily to hold the livestock. Um, so they'd have livestock out grazing to eat. But that was a really popular thing. The Indians would come through and they would run off the livestock where they'd steal them. So they had to be very aware of their all of their surroundings. That was kind of that was kind of a game between the tribes was stealing the other tribe. I mean, it that was, was a part of life. That for was sure. yeah. You know, I heard yeah. I heard that uh, somebody was was giving an account that the horses had been run between different tribal regions so much that when the new when the tribe had come to steal their horses back. The horses knew where to go, and then when the other tribe had come over, it was just, it was like a highway between the two. That could be, I don't, I don't know, but you've got all of these military horses and mules. Um, <laughs> had to be a totally different environment for that, too. Oh, yeah. Too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> these poor animals had no idea what they were getting into. Um, but so the men, when they became under attack, they all regrouped back to this circle of wagon boxes, and that's how the fight gets its name. But the interesting thing here is that there was um, a few losses on the military side, unknown losses on the Indian side because they collected their dead. But the military counted this as a victory. Really, it was probably a wash at best. But compared to the Fetterman fight, this was a victory because they hadn't all died. And I think that really exemplifies just how successful um, it was called Red Cloud's campaign or Red Cloud's war. That fight, that battle... It was just so well executed. Um, and it would have been much more remembered in history if Custer hadn't come along 10 years later and suffered higher losses. Right. And then we have Fort McKinney. Thank you. So Buffalo as a town was really founded specifically because Fort McKinney was installed. Okay. Um, and it's there's still remnants of the fort up Highway 16 to the west of us. Um, the post hospital building is still there, and there's some signage and whatnot. It's a beautiful site, and it was in existence for quite some time. I'm forgetting my dates here. But Buffalo sprang up as a support town for the fort. Um, so, of course, some of the first businesses were things like saloons because the military needed a place to go drink. And I'm sure churches were a quick second. You got a nice display on Tom Horn here. Again, another big Wyoming controversy yep. that uh, if you want to know about Tom Horn, both sides of the controversy, I guess, come here or Google or whatever. Oh, there's, again, there's some terrific books. Um, Chip Carlson has written a number of books about Tom Horn. John Davis, who is kind of from your area. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. He's from Warland, I yep. think. Yeah. He's written... About Tom Horn, Tom Horn also wrote his own autobiography. Maybe you've got to kind of 
Um, you could spend your life studying Tom Horn and the whole incident there right. and, and never come to the right conclusion. There's, I think, <laughs> going to be just permanent unknowns. Um, he was really an interesting figure in history. He was incredibly smart. You know, he taught himself with two other languages. He left home as a kid because he had an abusive stepfather and he just packed up and he took off. And he ended up working as a packer for the military. He was directly involved um, in the capture of Geronimo. Oh, really? Was, yeah, historical events. He was involved. Um, and, and but then he, at some point, he signed up for murder for hire. But I don't, I don't know if some event happened, if his moral compass just said that that was okay. I don't know. I'm not sure anybody will. But he led a very yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. And he ended up paying for it. He did. He did so indeed. He, he got a burlap necklace. <laughs> So we have a carriage house here at the museum. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, this is got... cool. I I really like the old wagons, buggies, and that's oh, something that they're too cool. They are. So our definitely oh, yeah. our most popular is this sheep wagon. Um, it this is kind of a, your fun factoid of the day. Okay. Sheep wagons originated in Wyoming. Um, Douglas, we were talking about Douglas earlier. That's the most accepted location. Um, Florence Hardware was one of the first places that really started to manufacture sheep wagons. Oh, really? Yeah. And so this one came from from there. It has been restored. It was in kind of rough shape before it was donated to the museum. But they're still in use. You'll see a lot of them in the Bighorns, all around the state. Um, Sweetwater County, there's a lot of sheep herding people still use Oh, these. yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's in uh, Grable between Grable and Basin, Wyoming, on the other side of the Bighorns, there is an Airbnb at uh, Serenity Stables, is what they call it. And you can stay in the, in sheep, in the sheep wagon. That's you can stay cool. in that. And I think the price is really reasonable. It's like maybe $35 or something. Now, of course, you have to use the outhouse that's provided. Right. But uh, you can stay in the sheep wagon. It's, it's like... The pre-runner to everybody's RV. Yeah, it had exactly. a wood stove. It had a bed. It yep. had cabinets. A little pull-out table you, under the bed. Yeah. You know, I mean, they had everything. They were set up for the sheep herder to be able to yep. go on out and, and tend his sheep wherever he was at yeah. for, for for months at a time. Quite a while. It and, was... and like you said, they're still in effect. Mm -hmm. uh, people are still using them, and they, they drag them around now a lot of times behind their truck and park they them. Do. And then the sheep herder has his horse that he can move it you know, two, three miles down yep. the way and, and keep chasing the sheep. Yep, exactly. Um, the National Association of Basque Organizations. Okay. They're headquartered in Elko, Nevada, but Buffalo in particular has a substantial Basque population, and you'll see a gallery about the Basque people here in a few minutes. Um, but every about five years, they have their big festival in Buffalo, and it is the coolest time. I'm I have heard Basque. that. Um, I don't know what I am, but I'm pretty sure I'm not Basque. But they're sheep people. I, they're they're and, from Spain. They sit on the border of Spain and Spain France. Spain and France. And, and they're sheep people. It doesn't matter where you're from. I had a good friend that was Basque. If you're at the but, festival, you're like pulled into dance. You're given cheap wine. You're given food. Um, it's very outgoing and energetic and colorful and a ton of fun. And they do this every five years. Well, I think they have their event every year, but they move it around to different states. So Buffalo has oh. hosted it about every five years. Okay. One of the best things about it is they always have a sheep wagon parade. So the last time they had like 400 sheep wagons go down. You've got to be joking. No, it was super cool. 
like one was totally covered in copper. It was oh, so pretty. and there's a lot of people that restore these things. These things mm -hmm. are highly valuable. Yep. Uh, I know that if you're trying to buy a sheep wagon that's been restored to the condition that this one is, you're going to pay you're going to pay a ten to twenty thousand yeah. dollars minimum yep. for for no one doubt. of these. So this is the chuck wagons have always been my favorite too. And this is a cool chuck wagon. Um, this chuck wagon and that bedroll wagon were used during the Johnson County War, which is our next subject. We we, we need to talk about yeah. the Johnson County War. So but, they were, and these were actually. Yep. They, now, did these come up from Cheyenne with the Johnson? Nope. These were used by a gentleman here. So his name was Henry Davis. He went by the nickname of Hard Winter Davis. Um, he owned the American Ranch, and they were his wagons. So they were used on roundups in any kind of events that they might have been needed for. They're in excellent condition now, primarily because the people who bought the American Ranch kept them in machine sheds for a very long time. So they were under protection. They were in storage. Um, but these wagons were in the thick of it. Wow. And and just for people that don't understand, the chuck wagon was where the camp cook mm -hmm. worked out of. Uh, a lot of times they would sling canvas underneath them and they would put, pick up uh, buffalo chips or, fuel. or yep. fuel along the way if they yep. found some decent sagebrush or something that they could uh, use for their fires. And then you said the bedroll wagon, which yep. all the cowboys would stick all their bedrolls in the bedroll wagon, and yep. then they would go ahead and take those to the next site. Yeah, and you picture a roundup. So, you you know, we're still in the open range days of Wyoming, and they conducted these pretty massive roundups because everybody's cows were eventually mixing together. So you had people from all of these different ranches coming, conducting the roundup at the same time. I'm sure it was a noisy, smelly, dusty mess, honestly. But you've got all these guys riding. They didn't need to be packing around things like their bedrolls. So it made sense to throw it into one wagon. And then that's taken care of. The food is taken care of in a wagon. Um, but they also used them when they were moving cattle, like, from one range to another. And, and oh, yeah. you know, I mean, these wagons maybe went five, 600 miles, uh, you I know, just, just as because they moved yeah. as, as they brought cattle up from Texas and into Montana and some of those areas, this this was an integral part of, yeah, of their deal. Absolutely. They had to feed those cowboys and they had to have a place to sleep. Yeah, I know what it's like when my staff gets hangry. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, can you imagine a bunch of ornery cowboys? Yeah. yeah, you better take care of them for sure. And then your Marshall wagon, is that Marshall, an actual Marshall no, wagon or a reproduction? It's a reproduction, which is why the door is open and people can go in it if they like. Um, you can, you are welcome to climb in there. You better be careful. I'm going to lock the door on you and put the padlock on. See, we get way too many kids and fourth graders through here. We have that chain, so you can't lock anything. <laughs> We've learned our and you got an old hose reel here that, yeah. that the firemen used to yes. used to use to go to the fires. So in the early days of Buffalo, we had an engine and hose volunteer fire department, and this was man powered. You did not hook an animal to this. This right. was a couple of guys. There's a long handle on the other side. So you'd have a person on each side, and they would run this through town to wherever they needed to get to. And you hope they were fast. Yeah. <laughs> and you hope the roads weren't real muddy or deep snow or anything like that. This is a pretty typical um, army wagon example. That's another army wagon. This one's really cool. The box is a reproduction, and it's had some restoration work, but the running gears are actually from um, one of the wagons that was at the wagon box fight. Oh, really? We were talking about earlier. 
Yeah. Now that is cool. This is a this yeah. is a nice room. I really like the carriages and the wagons. That's something that I I personally am in, in, should, interested in. You should add the Cheyenne Frontier Days Old West Museum on your your list of stops. That they have an amazing wagon and carriage collection. Cool. Huge collection. We'll have to do that. We will definitely have to do that. I got a lot of places to go. There's a lot to see. I've got a lot in a lot of places that I've been that I want to. I want to highlight again and, and do, and so. So we're now in the Johnson County Cattle War Gallery. This is a really convoluted story. And to try to kind of narrow it down so that a visitor who has any range of knowledge about the topic can understand what we're telling them. You mean like somebody that's watched the movie, The Johnson County War? <laughs> yeah, they might have to back up a few steps and start over. Um, I don't know. I think Sorry to have thrown no, no, you off on Heaven's that one. It's like the worst movie ever. And it's supposedly based on the Johnson County Cattle War. And it's, it's just so terrible. But uh, movies aside... You could make a really great movie about this by just telling the truth. Oh, because yeah. It's so political and complicated and everybody was involved. Including the president of the United States. This yeah. thing went... I don't think he quite understood what he was involved in, most likely, but he quite literally was... But again, it was, it was kind of like in our times. The corporations, the cattlemen corporations, kind of controlled everything, from what I understand. They did. And they controlled the legislature in Cheyenne. They controlled yep. the prairies. They controlled the plains. And all the homesteaders were outlaw trying to steal their cattle people, and they needed to get rid of them. Eliminate them. Yeah. Yes. So a lot of the laws on Wyoming's books that still exist today, for the most part, came directly from Europe because a lot of the um, large cattle operators were Europeans. And they saw an opportunity out here in the open west to run cattle and make money. And many of them never even stepped foot in what is now Wyoming. They had people working for them to do that. Uh, it's interesting because little towns like Buffalo do have quite a um, deep root system into Europeans, Scottish, English primarily because of this. So these, these investors, if you want to call them that, cattle barons, whichever, um, they were able to take advantage of the open range for quite a while and it was quite successful. So they had a lot of cowboys working for them. Things went really well until it didn't, which is what happens in life. Um, this mural that goes across the wall is kind of depicting that shift from good to bad. And so it shows the disastrous winter of 1886 to 1887. You go from really good land with great grass and healthy cows into this horrible winter um they did so the losses were huge like 80 90 percent yes type of losses um due to the losses from the, the cows dying many of these companies or investors didn't need to have quite so many cowboys on their payroll so they started laying off cowboys and then they blackballed them which mm -hmm. meant that they couldn't own cattle and run and be in direct competition with their previous bosses. And as you might imagine, a lot of these cowboys were also kind of independent spirits, and they're like, mm, I don't think so. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. There was also the Homestead Acts, and the government was kind of pushing people to actually utilize the Homestead Acts because they were wanting the West to be 
more settled. Um, so you could come in, and if you're a homesteader and you're looking for your 160-acre parcel, what are you going to look for? River bottom, water, yeah. especially in Wyoming. Exactly. So you find a spot with water. It's probably 160 acres that some investor has been using but doesn't own. Part of your um, requirements to prove up your homestead was that you build a dwelling, you live in it, you improve the property, and here's the kicker, you fence it. You were required to fence it. So by doing that, you were very often um, fencing out water access to others' cattle. That really added to this whole situation. So you have economic issues, you have water and access issues, um, and then you have independent guys like Nate Champion, there's a bronze outside, that are kind of thumbing their nose at the people who've been in, in the position of authority for quite a time, and they're just doing their own thing. And tensions ran high and things really blew up. Um, there are about 11 people over a fairly long time period that were killed during the course of the cattle war. But the watershed event happened in 1892, April of 1892. The cattle barons hired about 50 armed men to come to this area. And they had a list of people that they were either going to kill straight up or encourage to leave. <laughs> yeah, scare them away. Yeah, exactly. Um, there were some things that had happened prior. Nate Champion, he is very well known in this story because <laughs> he started conducting his own roundups in direct conflict with the cattle barons' roundups. He continued to run his own cattle. Um, there had been some murders. He got involved. He wanted to know what had happened. So he went and he found the guy that he thought was responsible and he beat him up and got a confession out of him. And there was going to be this court case, but then the witnesses were all killed. Imagine, yeah, exactly. So when the we're now calling them the invaders because they're invading our county. A lot of them were Texas Rangers. Well, they weren't necessarily Rangers, but they were Texans. <laughs> okay, I thought that they were Texas Rangers. <laughs> um, so many of them had <clears throat> jobs on both sides of the law for sure. <laughs> so they're coming up from the south. So they had kind of organized in Cheyenne. They went to Casper. They had this special train that took them to Casper, and then they had to ride from there. They learned that Nate Champion, who was like number one on their hit list, he was at the Casey Ranch cabin. It wasn't his ranch, but he was staying there along with one of his partners, Nick Ray, and two unfortunate um, mountain men and gold miners who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so they detoured and they went to that ranch cabin and they killed Nate Champion and Nick Ray. The other two guys, they got away. So that was good for them. But it took about a full day for this to happen because Nick and Nate put up a fight. They knew they were surrounded. They knew they knew it was hopeless. Nick Ray was killed first. Um, Nate Champion apparently kind of went out in a blaze of glory, quite literally, like went out guns blazing and the cabin had been lit on fire. That's what ran him out of the cabin. So that delay, the fact that they spent this whole day trying to kill this one guy meant that their plan was discovered. Um, there was another man named Jack Flagg. He and his stepson, Alonzo Taylor, were going through the area, and they saw what was going on, and then they were attacked, and they, like, cut the wagon harness and took off. So they came to Buffalo. They alerted the townspeople, who then kind of formed, and the townspeople started going south to meet the invaders. 
and they ended up meeting up at the TA ranch site, um, which still exists. It's a modern working ranch, guest ranch, super cool place. And they had a three-day siege with a lot of bullets flying back and forth. The invaders all holed up in the house, in the barn, all the outbuildings. Um, one man was shot through his midriff. Might have been an accidental like self-injury. Um, it just seems kind of weird how it happened. And another guy got his toe blown off. <laughs> but for for a three-day siege and that many bullets going back and forth, kind of not a lot actually happened. <laughs> it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, so when you mentioned the president's involvement, everybody back in Cheyenne is panicking. Things are not going according to plan. This is a little bit more difficult than they were anticipating. So they're trying to get martial law declared. They had cut the telegraph lines to prevent Buffalo people from notifying anybody. That kind of bit them in the butt because they couldn't communicate. Um, they didn't know what was going on. So eventually they got notice to the president that there's an insurrection happening in Johnson County. And it's all of these cow wrestlers, people that are, they become lawless. So the president probably doesn't really know what's going on. The local sheriff here was in way over his head, let's be honest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the military from Fort McKinney gets called in. And they ride south to the ranch. And they arrest all of the invaders. But they're really physically rescuing them. Because the townspeople had better supplies. They could outlast the invaders. So they arrested all of them. And they brought them to Buffalo. They ended up taking them again to Douglas. There's like this common thing of Douglas and Buffalo, right? <laughs> so they were held at Fort Fennerman. Um, the military was not happy about being involved with reason. This was a civilian issue and they shouldn't have been involved and they knew it and they were not happy about it, but they were given orders. So they marched. Um, all of the invaders that were arrested, they were eventually set free on a, on a bond whose name I'm forgetting. But basically, it's a goodwill bond. So that person is saying, yeah, I'll come back for the trial. I'll show up. You want to bet? Like, none of them, none of them showed, showed up. up. Not very many. <clears throat> um, the trial didn't happen for quite a long time. And then the trial actually didn't happen at all. The Whammy Stockers Association was kind of the head of this whole effort. And they had some very smart people. They caused Johnson County to go bankrupt. Because the county technically as like the arresting party was responsible for paying for the keep of these almost 50 men while they were in jail for months. Johnson County didn't have enough money to do that and they knew it. So when the trial was supposed to happen, there were supposed to be two or three lawyers representing Johnson County to show up in Cheyenne, which was also a fairly biased type of community and setting. The young guy showed up the youngest lawyer, the most inexperienced lawyer, and he's looking around going, where the hell is my other attorneys? Where's everybody else? They didn't bother to show. And so he literally just said, I give up. This is over. Nobody was really held accountable. By that time, a couple of the invaders who had been released were already dead, by the way. Oh. <laughs> They'd gone off onto other gunfights and things. Oh so they were a very active bunch, <laughs> for sure. I read the book Banditi of the Plains. Excellent book. Which is an excellent book. And the yeah. pre the foreword in that book is what, probably forty pages long. <laughs> and it's one of the most fascinating stories. I mean, it makes the whole Johnson County war story sound uh I mean it's a good story, but that pre the preface in that book or the foreword 
that 40 pages where they talk about how they had to they wrote the manuscript then they had to go to Cheyenne and steal the manuscript out of the Capitol building and they were being shot at and fire hosed and everything else as they were headed out it's just you go really and then they dispersed the manuscript to several different libraries and I, from what i understood or or if i remember the story correct they all went missing they all went missing they ha the state of wyoming hired or the Cattlemen's Association or whoever, hired men to actually go to libraries and destroy the manuscripts. So I know that sounds kind of, I don't know, like um, Indiana Jones-ish, right? Yeah. But if you read further, like, um, I'm forgetting the political players here, but there was a politician who got voted out and he physically would not leave his office. <laughs> so it got really, it, it, really immature. In a number of ways. Um, John Davis, the author from Warland, yes. wrote an excellent book on this topic. Um, oh, really? I haven't yep. seen that one. Wyoming Range War. It's a really good book. He's really detailed. He, he, he takes cover... you down all of these little paths, everybody that was so involved, and he ties them together. It makes sense. Really good. Is that is that one of the books that he wrote also about the Spring Creek Raid? He wrote a book about the Spring Creek Raid, but they're different titles. They're different titles. Yep. Okay. Okay. There's... Um, so there's really three books that I recommend, the Banditi being one, because it's the only contemporary book written during the time of you know somebody who was involved. Bill O'Neill wrote one called The Johnson County War a number of years ago, and it's the best book to get you started and going on this. Um, John's Dave, John Davis's book is a little bit more complicated because he, he dives down all of these little paths. So if you read Bill O'Neill's book first and then move on to John Davis's, you'll have a really really solid foundation of what exactly was going on here in the 1890s. Fascinating times. So one really cool thing too, in the banditi that you read, in the back of the book, there was quite likely a confession. And it was from one of the invaders, a man named George Wolcott. He was from Idaho. He got arrested by our sheriff, Sheriff Red Angus, because- Which is an interesting name. His, well, his- <laughs> Oh gosh, what was his real name? William Gillespie was his real name. William Gillespie Angus. But he somehow got the nickname of Red Angus. Red Angus, yeah. Um, Sounds like a steakhouse. It does. <laughs> so when the military went to the, the ranch and the white flag was flown and everybody was arrested and carted off, they also took all the munitions, horses, food, etc. George Wolcott had hidden himself very, very well in the barn. Nobody found him. But when he crawled out of the hayloft or wherever he was, he had no ride, no food, no weapons, <laughs> nothing at his disposal. So he walked to town. He came to Buffalo. It's about a 13-mile walk. He had to have known he was going to get arrested because, you know, everybody knows everybody today. I'm sure they really knew everybody back then. <laughs> yeah. um, he spent a lot of time in the Johnson County Jail. He was the only invader to actually spend time in our jail because he didn't go down to Douglas with the rest of them. And during that time, I'm sure he was incredibly bored. And he came up with this really awesome story about how he only agreed to do this because he was going to be the whistleblower, but he just never had a chance. 42 pages long, and we're talking legal. So he wrote out this big confession. I think I do remember reading that. It, it, was, it was probably six or seven years ago that yep. I read Banditi of the Plains, but I was just, the whole book was just absolutely fascinating. It is. The cool thing about this, and this is where I'm geeking out. So that's been available, the content, for a long time. We have that confession. That came to us, the original handwritten, 
you know, oh, really? multi pages. Yep, that came to us a few years ago. So it had been held. Um, Red Angus had it as the sheriff, and then his lawyer had it, and his family eventually donated it to us. So we have that original. Just and it's on display? No, that's it's part in of your the, archives. Yep, that's part <laughs> of the conditions of the donation because it's paper and it's fragile. Um, we have made very high quality scans that any researcher can come in and access, but the originals are under like lock and key protection. Cool. Yeah. So can I see them? <laughs> we don't have enough time today. <laughs> so we're in the Bass Gallery now, and it's kind of a shift from like the super dark murdery story. Murdery? Is that a word? We know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's we, all good. And then we come into this colorful red, green, white gallery um, that tells you about the Bass culture and the people and how they settled in this area. Um, this map is kind of cool because it shows you the Basque region and how it straddles the Pyrenees Mountains. And a lot of the folks that came over, um, you know, if they were born on the French side, then they spoke French and English and Basque. And if they were born on the Spain side, then they spoke Spanish and English and Basque. Um, the Basque language is super unique, doesn't have roots in Greek or Latin or anything else. And the the local lore, anyway, is that there's also no cuss words in Basque, but it doesn't matter because you just cuss in like Spanish, French, or English. <laughs> I, I was going to say the Basque guy I knew knew how. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody does. So there's a local Basque <clears throat> club here, and the part of the club, they have a dance group. And in the summertime, especially, they'll have different performances at events and that do you see how blingy it is there's yeah. like rhinestones all over the name so that's a, an accordion that was oh. used heavily by a man named joe bilbao and he would go to all these different dances and events and he'd play his accordion it's one of the traditional instruments used i'm gonna these. have to look up where the basques fests are because they're fun so they're hoops and sticks and their dances um our educator, Jennifer, would be better to talk to you about this because she's in the Basque Club. She's not Basque, but she's in the dance club because she's an excellent dancer and she loves it. So a lot of their traditional dances involve high kicks, jumps, and they'll use the hoops that go over their heads and down. And they'll often have multiple sticks, so sometimes they'll be clacking those together. I guess, really traditionally, they might be swords, <laughs> but that seems kind of dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> And different regions have um, different variations on the dance costumes. They're all pretty similar, but you'll notice some slightly different patterns or color uses. Okay. So this is Jim's uniform. He was actually a Spanish-American war veteran, um, but he never left the continental United States. They made it as far as Florida, and then the war was over, so then they sent guys back home. But he came to Buffalo. Um, he was a pharmacist. He opened his drugstore in 1900. He was also kind of an amateur historian, like local veterinarian, all-around good guy. A lot of people have a lot of memories of him. Um, you know, they'd have somebody who was ill in their family, and they couldn't afford medication, and he'd just find a way to make it work. So cool. he started collecting things and displayed them in the back room of his drugstore, and that's the nucleus of this museum today. It was his original collection. Oh, really? Yeah. So he passed okay. away in 1954, and his family told the community that they would give all of his artifacts if the museum was built. And so this building that we're in now was built, and it was opened in 1957 as the Jim Gatchel Memorial Museum. 
Okay. So now we're upstairs. We're and getting this, closer to the end. This is something that I'm really interested in. The this whole is, bomber mountain thing was this is my favorite highly story. interesting. You've been there? Did it's you see the guns site. and the wreck, wreckage and stuff? I'd like to do that at some point in time. It's pretty um, pretty meaningful site to visit, honestly. I, I don't like to use the word favorite because that kind of implies happy, but it is my favorite story out of everything that we have here. Um, I'm not entirely sure why, to be honest, other than the crew. There were 10 guys that died, and they were all so young. And I just always get caught up thinking about, like, what would their lives have been if this hadn't happened? You know, the oldest was 25. I was 25 quite a while ago. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> but just a, but just a quick breakdown of what happened. There was a B-17 that took off from? Um, so they left from Pendleton Field, Oregon, and they were supposed to be going to Grand Island, Nebraska. And they were on their way to Europe, but that was their flight plan at that particular time. What's that? They were definitely off course. Don't know exactly why. They're about 100, 150 miles to the north from where they should have been. And if they had been on their intended flight path, they wouldn't have hit any mountains at the altitude at which they were flying. But because they were flying over the Bighorn Mountains, which they weren't supposed to be, they crashed into, at that time, it was an unnamed ridge. Um, now it's called Bomber Mountain. It was named. In and it was at night that they crashed. It was at night. The weather, I've seen different weather reports. I'm not entirely sure what it was doing on the mountain, but it was June 28th or very early in the morning of June 29th. Um, I think they were so young and so inexperienced. Um, this is 1943. The U.S. involvement in World War II, things were getting really hot and heavy, especially for bombing raids. B-17s were there heavy bomber at the time that was being used a lot and it was also being wrecked right. a lot they were losing a lot of planes and a lot of men so they were shuffling crews as quickly as they could to europe and we know that at least a couple of our crew members they skipped whole phases of training and we're talking a couple of months worth as a phase right so we know that they were pushing them out too quickly they just didn't have the experience um the plane that's not the plane. That's an example of the plane. I haven't ever found any pictures of our particular plane. It was brand new. Um, it was manufactured and finished on June 6th at the Douglas um, Aircraft Plant in Long Beach, California. And then it was sent to Texas where it was modified. And then it was flown from Texas to Walla Walla, Washington. And <laughs> at Walla Walla, our pilot, the guy in the top left corner, Billy Ronigan, he got the plane and he flew it about 30 miles to Pendleton Field. So it had at least three successful flights. Um, these guys had all just been put together as a crew at uh, Pendleton or at Walla Walla, I forget which. So they had only known each other for a matter of a couple of days. They had just got their plane and then they were sent off. And they were supposed to fly with another B-17 who that plane successfully made it to Grand Island on schedule. But these guys were about 10 minutes late taking off. I don't know why. And they never caught up. And they never... That would be me on a crew, usually. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, exactly what went wrong, we don't know. But it took them two years to find it. It did. Um, 
and it wasn't for lack of trying. You know, the, right. the Army Air Corps at the time, they made an effort to try and search and find these guys. Um, they searched the Bighorns. They searched all over Wyoming because they had radioed in. So they knew they had to be in Wyoming somewhere, but they didn't find the wreckage. Um, and I can understand why. It's actually kind of hard to find if you don't know exactly where you're going. Um, it was found by a group of cowboys. They were conducting a roundup, actually, of cattle in the mountains. And they noticed something kind of shiny. Mm -hmm. So they climbed up to take a look, and they found the wreckage, and they found the bodies, and they realized it was military, so they reported it to the Forest Service. Forest Service reported it to the Army. Um, an investigation and recovery crew was sent immediately from Rapid City Air Base, which is now Ellsworth. Um, they recovered the bodies as best they could. There wasn't anything worth salvaging from the plane. And it was just absolute utter destruction. If you read through the accident report, the language is very, very concise. I know that there's a story about one of the men surviving because somebody reported seeing a body propped up leaning against a rock with items around him. I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. Um, it was two years since they had wrecked on top of a 12,000 foot mountain in the wilderness with incredibly high winds and snow. So the odds of his stuff, like pictures and things being laid out around him were very, very slim. Um, somebody might have seen something that implied that, and I think it's just taken off as a myth. And the reason that I bring that up is because in the research we've done here, we've talked to a lot of the crew members' families. And this gentleman here, that kind of sepia-toned photo, Lewis Shepard. I had the, the opportunity to talk to his youngest brother a couple years ago. He was 90 at the time. Really, really neat man. And he explained how it had bothered their mom and then him for about 70 years to wonder if that was true. And if it was true, was it Lewis? And did Lewis die by himself with exposure? Was he alone? Was he cold? Did he suffer? Um, and that's when it really hit home to me of like how these myths sometimes do more harm than good. Um, there is absolutely no way anybody survived that crash. And when you read the accident report, it's very gruesome. It's very detailed. Nobody survived. Huh. They probably... You've got actual parts of the, of the plane here. We do. You've got a machine gun and... We have a couple. We just don't have room to display them. Um, so if you visit the site now... You know, it's, it's protected by a couple of national laws, um, and it's also the site where 10 men lost their lives. So we always try to remind people, please do not pick up parts of the wreckage. Don't take it home. Um, it's not going to mean anything to you or your kids in 20 years, you know. Um, and the Forest Service will give you a ticket if they catch you doing it. <laughs> so there's multiple reasons for that. Why we have these items is because people have in the past, before it was illegal, or they just didn't know. Um, and so they brought them in, and that's fine. Nobody is looking to get anybody in trouble. If they want to bring them to us, that's totally okay. Um, we just have an agreement with the Forest Service that we can display these items because it fits our mission statement, and it's not really within the Forest Service's mission to interpret history. So it's it works. Um, but well, and the thing that's nice is having displays that public can come and see instead yeah. of in a private collector scared to death. He's right. going to get in trouble collection. Right. I don't want anybody to feel scared or threatened <clears throat> in any way. Um, but, you know, I, 
distant family member, I won't say any, <laughs> had taken a piece when they were a kid, like in the 60s. And this person's in their, in their 60s now. And they don't know where it is or what it was. And it has no meaning to them. Right. In multiple moves throughout life, they probably lost it. You know, so there's a lot missing from the wreckage. When you visit the site, it's kind of breathtaking in general, but also how much of the plane is gone and you realize there's people that have scavenged it and they've graffitied it. There's names carved all over everything. And chunks of the tires have been cut out. And, um, that's unfortunate, but it is a very poignant site and it's beautiful. I mean, it is so beautiful. I have an ambition to get up to Bomber Mountain at some point in time, but I just haven't haven't had the opportunity. Um, I've climbed it twice, but the first time we didn't find it. <laughs> so I don't know if that counts. And we were going to go the next day. We talked to this other hiker and he told us, okay, this is where you need to go and then take a left and you'll make it. And we're like, okay, we can do this, me and my husband. And then that night it snowed so much it broke our tent. <laughs> and the next morning we're like, we're done. We're out of here. So it took us a few years to get back up, but we made it back up and we found the wreckage. And I took a million photos and took the opportunity to just sit and think about these 10 guys and what had happened. Huh. You know, a couple of them were At least married. They died in a pretty spot. <laughs> and it, you know, it had to have been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, over the years, a number of their various family members have come to the area, kind of, you know, looking for closure, I'm sure. Right. Um, when they crashed in 1943, there was very little publicity about it because the war was raging and it just wasn't the kind of information that we wanted the access to know that we were suffering losses like this. Um, so you'll find just like a little blip maybe in one of the flyers, hometown newspapers, but not a lot. And I can't imagine what the families dealt with, you know, two years of not knowing. So after a year of them being missing, they were declared dead. The families could try to like get life insurance and things like that. And then after another year, they had to go through that all over again. Yeah, it is for sure. So now that I've made everybody depressed. <laughs> no, we're not depressed. It's all history. <laughs> um, we can't walk through this area because it's a disaster. This is our changing exhibits gallery, and we're currently installing this exhibit called the Walk Down Main Street. And it's going to focus on about seven businesses that have been in Buffalo over the years. But we're working on everything all at once. So we have tools on the floor and things in the way. But this space that we're in, um, as you've I'm sure figured out, is about one layer. So a lot of people come through the area and they're fans of the Longmire TV show, but they didn't know that there's books that the TV show is loosely based on. And they also didn't know that the author lives here. I'll bet that they thought that Cody was like just a hundred miles away and that they <laughs> thought the Cheyenne and yeah, yeah. Yep. It amazes me when I watch that, how fast they can get from one place to another. Yeah. Me too. And they can even get to the res from here. Very, very quickly. <laughs> yes. So I've always been a book nerd, and I know I'm kind of biased, but the books are so much better. The books TV show is good, better. but the books are always better. I agree. Um, they're really, it's an excellent series. I don't comprehend how Craig Johnson, the author, can weave this like continuous story through, you know, 15, 16 titles while having each book still be its own. Yeah, um, it just, I'm super impressed by that. Uh, he's a really nice guy. He and his wife, Judy, they live here in Johnson County. They're very supportive of the community. They helped us put this exhibit together, <laughs> the bobblehead. <laughs> um, so we wanted to focus 
keeping true to our mission for the museum on the local history, we wanted to tell people about Craig because Craig is who created this whole shebang. And that's why we have Longmire Days in the summer in Buffalo and we get thousands of people that come to town. That's cool. Yeah, it is indeed. And now, see, we looped you around. Now cool. you're back towards the museum store. Well, I really appreciate this tour. This is really nice of you to take the time out of your day and uh, to spend time with us. And again, this is the Jim Gatchell Memorial Museum. It's in Buffalo, Wyoming. Buffalo's a cool little town. They've got uh, the Occidental Mo uh, Hotel, mm -hmm. which has a restaurant in it, and it is an old-time hotel. I mean, it's been around for absolute ever. you got to check out their saloon at Occidental. They have this fabulous Tiffany back bar with this gigantic mirror. It's really pretty. <clears throat> And you can go check out the rooms upstairs, and I think you need to ask first. Yeah, but 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 <laughs> but, uh, yes. but yeah, they'll let you they've, go, or at least they did a couple of years ago mm -hmm. when I was there. They've done a terrific job at the restoration of that building, and it is just it's it's a really neat place. Of course, all the outlaws had stayed there at one point in time or another, and and uh, this area was heavy with uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. The hole in the walls, what another thirty miles south, probably there in KC. Yep. Casey's yeah. another cool spot. Casey's a ni another nice town. That's where Chris Ledoux is from. Yep. And uh, if you haven't listened to Chris Ledoux's music, definitely get on and do that because Classic. it's one of my favorites. Uh, yeah, you can't go anywhere in Wyoming without listening to Chris Ledoux. Uh, <clears throat> but the hole in the wall is another really neat place. Mm -hmm. I don't know what access is now. Um, you can access it, but because of... <laughs> The mud that can develop there if you have any kind of weather issues it's always safest to check in with somebody in KC first like at their chamber or at the hoofprints of the past museum I always send people to those places and, and talk to the locals find out am I gonna get my car stuck and then but you've got to park quite a ways away and, and then walk in because it's, it's on private land yeah it's, it's, I think so yeah but the hole in the place. wall is beautiful country yep. and uh, a lot of history happened there. An awful lot, for sure. But anyway, it's been very nice talking to you, learning about Buffalo, checking out your museum. I encourage people to come here. It's easy access, uh, easy to find, and well worth your time. Well, thank you very much, Sylvia. Thank you. Thanks for letting me ramble. You can tell us is, we love what we do. We well, love seeing people. And you have something worth doing. I mean, this museum is awesome. So thank you very much, and we will catch you around. Where Am I to Go is produced by Lauren Alberts, edited by the most excellent Steve Baumgartner at Baumgartner Ranch. Thank you, Steve, for taking all of the imperfections and making it better. Theme song is by Woods Tea Company. Be sure and check them out at woodstea.net. Creative Design, Logos, Merchandise Design by Desiree at DB Creative Design. And last of all, I'd like to thank Anchor at anchor.fm for the free and easy way to start a podcast. All the rolling go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?